Good morning. I'm Kenny. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fullerton. Morning. Or daddy to some of you, one of you in the room. Um, the first service, boy, that, that line, I believe in the Saints' communion, hit me as we just finished the end of a year and starting a new year. And as I've been thinking back on 2014 and what God's been doing here, I believe in the Saints' communion is saying, I believe that God creates in the church this unique bond, this fellowship that his spirit dwells in us and among us. And with Christ as the head, we actually experience this real family of God reality. So I don't just believe in it. I'm thankful for it. Thankful to be here this morning. Thankful to be singing these songs with you and opening the word up with you. And it's good, right, to be part of the Saints' communion. Yeah, amen. Um, all right, New Year's. Uh, in the first service, I asked if anyone had uh, rung in the New Year in a more exciting way than I did. Anybody here? Anybody? <laughs> Cassidy, Austin, I called her out in the first service, but she actually just got off a plane, having flown back from New York in time for church. Way to go. And where were you when the ball dropped? All these people have to stand for like 12 hours and not, you know, hold it all day just to be in this like pen with thousands of cattle, you know, for the ball. And somehow she had a connection and got to get whisked in like a couple hours before it dropped and stand right under it. Pretty cool. Anyway, she has pictures to prove it. But um, I, on the other hand, was ringing in the new year at 9.45 p.m. Don't tell Lily Mae. It was midnight, right? We rang it in a minute. No. Thanks to Netflix and this four-minute cartoon they made this year, Madagascar's King Julian New Year's Countdown or whatever, we <laughs> rang in the New Year at 9.45 and drank Martinelli's and whisked them off to bed. And, um, but then we stayed up and because we, we do it every year, obligatory. So we, we don't need to stay up till midnight. I don't enjoy watching Ryan Seacrest, and I do it anyway every year. And we watch, and we watch the ball drop and the craziness. But then instantly, once the ball drops, aside from showing everybody kissing on the street, they run out and they start putting the mic in everybody's mouth, in, in front, in, not in their mouth, but in front of their <laughs> mouth, and, and say, what? What do they ask? Will they say happy, huh? Yeah, what is your New Year resolution? What are you going to do next year? What, what's going to be different this year? And, you know, some people are on the spot. They, I, my New Year's resolution is to be, is to be happy. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking for a little more specific. Anyway, they're just asking people, what's next year going to be like? What's going to be different usually is the question. Um, and there's something about the changing of the year, the time passing, the reminder that we're all getting older. I was just thinking there was this quote years ago that I heard Eric, I remember Eric Tonis referencing, I think it was Camus. Is, do you remember this quote? But he, he, he was a, he was a uh, joyful sort. And his, his line was, the reason everyone makes so much noise on New Year's Eve is to drown out the sound of the grass growing over their graves. <laughs> That's pretty, I think it was him. Anyway, but there's something about the passing of time and New Year's is one of those moments that just reminds us time is moving forward. My life is, is moving on. And, and there's introspection, there's taking stock. Am I living for what's important? Am I living for the right things? What am I living for? And, and then saying, what, what is this next year gonna be? How, do I, how then shall I live, right? Psalm 90 is this psalm that Moses wrote, and at the beginning, he's beginning thinking about God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And then he at one point says, you know, our days, God, you know, if we're lucky, you're 70, or maybe 80, if we're really doing good, a ripe old age. But in the end of the day, that is just this passing thing next to a God who's from everlasting to everlasting. And as he contemplates his mortality, he says, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. 
In other words, um, help us not um, ask the most important questions. Help us not to fritter away our life, but to be, live wisely. So there's, it's right for us to stop frequently and say, am I living for what I ought to be living for? Is my life for something eternal and lasting, or is it not? And if you're a Christian, the Bible has something to say about what ought we be living for? How then ought we to live? So if you're a Christian, if you hit, that means you have been redeemed by God's sovereign grace. You were a sinner. You were not seeking him. But God made you alive together with Christ, and he raised you up. He made you a new creation. He adopted you. You're now owned by God, bought with Jesus' blood, standing in his grace. If that's you, the Bible says this is how then we should live. Turn to Colossians 3. This is how one way Paul answers that question. If you're born again, if you're in Christ, how then shall we live? I actually want to read Colossians 3, 1 through 15, and then we're going to camp on verse 16 this morning. But I want us to hear the whole chapter. Here's how Paul would answer that. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these things, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. What's the overarching aim for the Christian life? It's this. I mean, he sums it up in verse 10 as being renewed after the image of your creator. 
that's what God is intending for the rest of your Christian life to be about, to do through his Holy Spirit using his word in you, that you would be renewed day by day after the image of your creator. And look at verse 17. He sums it all up in this. He says, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So living out this new self and being renewed after the image of our creator involves killing sin and putting earthly things to death. And it involves putting on God's character, not just like a costume or outward clothing or a facade, but um, bearing the resemblance of our heavenly father. First John says that God's seed now abides in you such that we begin to actually resemble more and more our heavenly father. He says, this is the Christian life is growing into the image, back into the image of your heavenly father. And he sums it up by saying, in other words, in whatever you do, word, deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's worth us stopping and thinking about for a moment. Everything. So raise and lead and discipline your children, parents, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And kids, follow your parents' lead in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? 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 <laughs> and carry out the daily tasks of your job, even the menial ones, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in a way that expresses joy and gratitude and the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. Work in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? The way you talk to and treat your wife or your husband or the way you talk to your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your boss or your employees, or the stranger in line in front of you, right? In the name of the Lord Jesus. Use your computer in the name of the Lord Jesus. Spend your money in the name of the Lord Jesus. Save your money in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give your money in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let your sleeping habits and our eating habits be informed by the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Everything he's saying. He means whatever you do in word or in deed. Uh, recreation in the name of the Lord Jesus. Taking in entertainment in the name of the Lord Jesus. Face conflict in the name of the Lord Jesus. Endure suffering in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything, right? That is a huge banner statement over the Christian life. Could feel crushing and overwhelming. I can't think of one day of my Christian life that could be described by whatever I did in word or indeed everything was in the name of the Lord Jesus. And yet here it is. This is the aim, right? It's like the, 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 the New Year's resolution for every year for the Christian, right? Is in the name of the Lord Jesus, my life is lived as an expression of love and trust and gratitude for the Lord Jesus. And I want this. Do you want this? Christian, is there something when verse 17 doesn't necessarily have to feel like this crushing load, but this thing that your heart says yes to, I read that and I say, yes, 
It's not my constant reality, but I want it. And I thank God for that. I mean, do you, do you ever stop and you just thank God? If, if you read verse 17 here and something in you says, I want that, God gets credit for that. I mean, songs we sang uh, even this morning, I'm not going to remember the words right now, but, uh, oh yeah, we had wandered, we had all wandered far from the fold of the shepherd of the sheep. And that's the Bible, right? Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray, everyone to our own way. Romans says, none seek for God, no one, no one from the heart, from birth, wants to do whatever we do in word and deed for the name of the Lord Jesus. So that desire even in your heart is a reason to give thanks to God. But it's also a desire to live for, to pursue. But talk about a massive resolution. I've just been thinking about these, that verse all week. Whatever you do, whatever you do. I mean, you've all heard people announce a New Year's resolution that was like way overly ambitious, right? Maybe you've seen someone on Facebook this week or Twitter and you're like, Really? I remember years ago, one of our core group leaders uh, with, with youth, uh, New Year's said, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is this big, and he said, I'm going to read one chapter in this a week, all the way through the year. When I get to the end of it, and I was thinking, okay, okay, why don't you just try, you know, uh, slow down a little bit, you know, and I knew it, you know, two weeks later, it was like, ugh, you know, I've totally fallen <laughs> off the thing, but, but I mean, talk about a massive resolution, right? I mean, I think just putting one thing to death in me that is earthly just one thing, one day, right? Or putting on compassion in one given situation or putting on patience or meekness in one relationship or situation is overwhelming enough, let alone in all things and whatever I do. We fall so short of this. I'm encouraged because Paul got that. In Philippians 3, he says... Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We can't miss that last part. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Therefore, I want verse 17 to be a reality in my life. I want to know this life. And I think verse 16, which I've skipped all around here intentionally, is at the very root of this. Let's read it. In other words, how does this maturing happen? How does putting sin to death in not just a sort of whack-a-mole, um, every temptation comes up, just keep trying to say no, no, but deep indwelling sin, the roots of it dying so that my inclination is less and less for the things that grieve God's heart and are destructive to me and, and, and an offense to God, that those things actually diminish in my heart. I think verse 16 is is at the root of it. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I think that verse right there is the soil that verse 17 grows out of and bears fruit from. The word of Christ dwelling richly bears fruit of whatever you do in word and deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so I want us to think about this one verse, verse 16, and how this might be an aim for us this year to be a church that increasingly is seeking to get the word of God, Christ, dwelling more richly in us. So here's the four parts. 
I want us to think about the word of Christ, what Paul means by that. Secondly, that it dwells in us richly. And then means, he says, teach and admonish one another and sing with thankfulness to God together. That's the means by which the word of Christ comes to dwell more richly in us. So let's just take apart those four thoughts and think about them. Number one, the word of Christ. With the word of Christ, this is what needs to dwell in us, the word of Christ. And I don't think he means just the words of Christ. Well, that's true. You know, Matthew 28, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded, Jesus said. So the words of Christ are part of what needed to dwell richly in us. But I think when Paul right here says the word of Christ, he is thinking pretty big picture. He is, this is the word about Christ, the word that has come to culminate in Christ, the word of God of which Christ is the apex. Turn back to the beginning of Colossians. There's some hints in in this letter that this is what Paul has in mind. The gospel and all that the gospel entails, all the building blocks of it, and all the truths that come together to be the message of the gospel. This is what he has in mind, I think. Look at verse 5 of chapter, or 4 of chapter 1. Paul calls this word here, he says, um, is it verse 4? Let me find where I am here. Yeah, chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, no, five. Here we go. Halfway through five. He says, you've heard before, of this you've heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and look what he calls it here, you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's this word, right? It's the word of truth, the gospel, and it's the grace of God in truth. So i Put that all together, and it's something like this. The word of Christ is the word, the true word, that God's grace is offered to us through Christ. But it has all these building blocks and truths that make up that one truth. Even if you just take John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's this word of truth in a sentence, the grace of God to us through Jesus. But even this one sentence, again, is packed with truth, right? I mean, think about how many questions you can come up with here. Here's some. Who is this God who sent his son who loved the world? What's he like? How do we know what he's like? Do we just take his word for it? Has he shown us what he's like? Why does he love the world like this? Or you might think, well, why shouldn't he love the world like this? Is there some reason why that actually should be surprising that God so loved the world in this manner? Or what does perishing mean? Does it just mean dying and being buried? Or does it mean something even more than that? Why would anyone be in danger of perishing in the first place? How can we have everlasting life in bodies that wear out? So far, every person, everybody I've seen wears out, right? So everlasting life, how does that happen? God has a son and he just has one son? What does it mean that he sent him? Oh, he was born. He came by being born, conceived of Virgin Mary, like we sang. Why was he sent? What did God send him to do? What is it about him that we must believe in? We can just go on and on, just this simple gospel even, to really understand it. 
involves theology, right? Doctrine, understanding what the scriptures say to answer these questions, even just in this simple, this simple gospel sentence. I think this, this big picture gospel is what Paul often calls the faith, right? Colossians 1, 23, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, Continue with your trust in these truths that make up the, the, the gospel and the grace of God. In fact, turn back to Acts 20 for a minute, would you? While you're turning there, in, in Colossians 2, he has this line where he says uh, that, that he prays that they would be uh, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So in Acts 20, we get this glimpse of how did Paul go about trying to root and establish people in the faith? So in Acts 20, he's on the beach at Ephesus about to leave after three years with, with this church that he helped plant and establish and train up leaders in, and he's saying goodbye. And these are his closing words with tears as he's hugging and saying goodbye. And in Acts 20, verse 20, he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and from teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. He testified to repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus. And in verse 24, he says, I testified to the gospel of the grace of God. So that's how he did it. It sounds like this simple gospel, right? Turn from your sin, turn to God, trust in Jesus, sin's forgiven, that's it. But then a few verses later, this is how he went about doing this. He spent three years, it says, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. And then his parting words are this. He says, remember, for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So this word of grace involves the whole counsel of God. Paul, Paul taught the whole counsel of God so that they would understand this word of grace and be built up in it. All right. Hope I'm not trying to lose you, but going back to Colossians 3, I think when Paul says this word of Christ that needs to dwell in us is this word of God's grace that the whole counsel of God speaks to and helps us have a clear picture of and understanding and revelation of. And he says, I want it to dwell in you richly. So it's the gospel in all its fullness. It's who God is. It's what are his plans and purposes from before time. It's a word about our fall into sin and the effects of sin on us and on the world and the consequences of it. And the word of Christ involves his redemptive plan that's been revealed over time in steps and finally was fully revealed in Jesus, right? It was this mystery for ages past and now in Jesus has been revealed and it's a word about him and what he came and accomplished and how he lived and how he died and that he rose and that he ascended and that he's coming back. 
And the word of Christ includes all that we benefit now because of that. And it includes how the Holy Spirit actually brings those benefits to bear on us. And the word of Christ includes the ends to which he did that, to renew us after the image of his creator, our creator, and to one day be with him forever in glory and to make all things new. All of this is part of the word of Christ. It's this whole picture of the revelation of God of grace, his plan to show grace in the world. This is this word of Christ. And Paul sees this as if it dwells in the heart, godly living will grow. Okay, so the word of Christ, the gospel in all its fullness, all the building blocks of the gospel and all the implications, and so, so what then of the gospel is, is what, Christ, or what Paul wants to dwell in us richly. So that's number two, dwell in us richly. What do we do with this word of Christ? We let it dwell in us richly. Dwell in us, live in us, reside in us. So it's a word, it's truth, but it's not just out here and we refer to it and, and, and we go to it sort of as a reference, but he's saying all this truth, I want it to, to inha- be enhoused in you, it literally means. I want it to dwell in you, this word of truth. I think that includes a couple of things. Let me give this as a definition of what I think Paul means by dwelling richly. It's a knowledge of the gospel truths that include clear understanding and confident faith. That's dwelling in us. It's a knowledge of the gospel that includes clear understanding and confident faith. And we see these both in Colossians. Look at Colossians 1. Again, verse 5. There's clear understanding, owning these truths, not just knowing the vocabulary of them and being able to recite them back, but my mind understands them and and comprehends them. He says in in verse five, he says, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it. So in other words, when did the word of Christ begin to bear fruit, start sprouting and actually bear fruit and increase? It's when the grace of God was understood, right? It was heard and understood, comprehended, grasped. That's what God has done through his grace. That's how he's done it. That's why he's done it. And it's understood. And then it begins to bear fruit and increase. And that's why Paul prays just a couple of verses down, verse nine. So from the day we heard, we haven't ceased to pray for you that the understanding wouldn't stop. It would continue. He says that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, more understanding Paul keeps praying for, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. That understanding would increase truth that is owned, You just don't know that it's out here and we can go reference it and we can cite it chapter and verse. But those truths, the reality of them are understood clearly. But more than that, that they're trusted in, right? Because at the end of the day, if they're not believed and trusted in, I don't think Paul would say they're dwelling in you. It's a confident faith in that truth. Look at Colossians 1.21. He says again, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So this understood gospel of grace is something clung to in faith, trusted in and not shifted from or abandoned, right? So the word of Christ dwelling richly involves a faith, a confident trust in this gospel truth. Don't just understand it. I, incre I, I, I increasingly through my life believe it. I'm confident in it. I noticed this interesting parallel this week. Colossians 3.16, our verse here, um, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Paul in Ephesians prays something really similar, but it's not quite. He says in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. In Ephesians, he, said, he prays that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And I should have put the, the next phrase on there, but it, it, it goes on to say that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Think about that for a minute. Sort of un unpack that. So the word of Christ dwells richly in us. Christ dwells in our hearts as this true word of his love, this gospel truth of his love. Christ died because he loves you. He showed his love in that he laid down his life for you. This love is rooted and you're rooted and grounded in that love. That's another way of saying you believe it, right? You trust in it. There's a confident faith there. And when that happens, Christ dwells in your heart, right? He dwells in your heart through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. It's when the, this word of truth about who Christ is, what he's done, is actually owned and believed by you and me. And he doesn't just say dwell there. He says he needs to dwell there richly, right? Bountifully, deeply, not superficially or sporadically, temporarily, but fully, right? Richly. I was trying to think of illustrations this week of, of when knowledge is owned and dwells in you so richly that it just, it just transforms the way you live thought of a more silly one, not silly, but, uh, and then a more significant one. But the first one I thought of, because I think of food a lot, was, uh, was I watched the Food Network, and, and I'm amazed at chefs like Bobby Flay. If you know who Bobby Flay is, he's a chef, he's a famous chef, he's on the Food Network, he's an Iron Chef, even, right? Iron Chef America. You guys with me? Anyone out there know what I'm talking about? Okay, good, good, good. So some of you do. Climb into my world here for a minute. So I thought about this because one of the things I love about watching Bobby Flay in particular, he just has this knowledge of cooking that's just amazing. It's just this comprehensive knowledge of everything from every possible ingredient, knows what that is, and every possible dish that you can make in from all different cuisines, this knowledge of it, and, and ingredients and spices and how they work together and what complement each other, what don't, and equipment and technique, and just everything about cooking is so... He owns it. So that, that he's on these shows like Iron Chef or Beat Bobby Flay where 30 minutes the chef comes in and says, all right, um, I'm going to name a dish. And right there he has to cook it in 30 minutes and he still beats him. And this knowledge is so owned that he can say, okay, here's your ingredient. Go. And he just does it, right? He doesn't stop and pull out the recipe book and let me see. And that knowledge of cooking is just so owned that there's not a step between that and doing it, right? He just, he operates in it because he knows it. That's Maybe a sillier illustration, but in some way, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but when the word of Christ dwells in us in such a way that it's understood and trusted in such that we just 
act according to it, right? We, we, we live from that framework of knowledge, that viewpoint. The, the mind of Christ becomes our mind, and we think that way, and we respond to situations, and, and we treat people out of this knowledge. We own it. Or maybe a more relevant example, more relational example, I was thinking about my kids' knowledge of my love for them, Right? I mean, that is a word of truth. I love my kids, right? I love my daughter and my son, right? I love them. I want what's best for them. I want to protect and provide for them. And I want them to know that. That is a word of truth. I want to dwell richly in them, right? Parents, right? You know that feeling? I want that word of truth. It's a true word. I love you. And I say it a lot, but I want it to dwell richly in my kids. And what that means is I want them to really understand it, not just that I say it, but that I show expression of it, And over time, they increasingly know it's true and are confident and trusting that it is true and it's not going to change, right? If you think about then, what what does that begin to look like in my kid's life? The more richly that knowledge of my my true love for them dwells in them, it's going to manifest itself, isn't it? Want to bear fruit? Not perfectly. But over time, I would hope that um, it would manifest itself in ways like, Uh, trusting more when I say no or I say wait, that if if you really know I love you and what that means that I love you, it doesn't always mean I give you the thing that you want right now if it's harmful for you. If you really understand my love and trust it, increasingly you will trust my decision or my lead, right? Little by little, right? Right? Or maybe it, it begins to look like a, a more openness and an and honesty uh, that, that I would hope that as my kids get older, they trust and come to me and come to Betsy with their fears or their struggles or their problems or their mistakes. And, and there's a freedom to come to us because perfect love casts out fear, right? And this knowledge that we love them is so rich that they, they act accordingly to They open up to us and they don't have to hide it for fear that maybe that love will stop. You see what I mean? Or it, sometimes it'll just express itself, I would think, in more affection over time. The more deeply they know they're loved, that affection would grow for the one who loves him. And I think this is the way it works with our relationship with God, this word of truth, the word of Christ dwells in us richly and the roots of sin die. And the character of God grows in us. And that's what I want for us. I want for me, I want for us to be a people in whom the word of Christ dwells richly and it's expressed in ways that you can point and say, that's, that's in the name of the Lord, that's life in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right, so look at the last part, half of this verse. So that's the, the aim, that the word of Christ would dwell richly. And then the means, Paul says, these aren't the only, but the ones he points to here, he says, you know how to get the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. He doesn't just say learn it. He says, uh, make it a group project. Help one another learn it. Help one another understand it. Help one another trust it. Do it together. Teach, admonish, and admonish. Warn one another. So parents with kids and husbands and wives and older believers with newer believers, 
it can be so easy to, to I think, for us to, to pursue growing spiritually just individually. I, I got my thing I'm doing. I'm reading this or I'm memorizing this or I'm praying this way. And you got your thing and you got your devotional book. Even in our marriage, it can be so easy for us to, Betsy's got her thing, she's doing it, I got my thing. And, and for us to even neglect that togetherness in in the word of Christ dwelling richly. And Paul says, no, do this together with one another. Teach and admonish one another. And the benefit isn't just for the one on the receiving end, the one who's taught, but for the teacher as well. How many of you have taught the word of Christ? I'm looking at Laura because you do that almost every week with my son and other kids. But in, in the teaching, the word of Christ is dwelling more richly, isn't it? So it's not just this benefit, well, we, kind of, we need to do this because some people just need to learn it. No, we all need to learn it more deeply. And that in the teaching and the being taught, the word of Christ goes deeper, puts down deeper roots. And I love, lastly, that he, he connects it with worship. He doesn't just say, teach and admonish one another. It's not just a knowledge uh, content thing. It's a worship thing. It's a heart thing. It's an affection thing. He says, teaching one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In part, I, I think that he, Paul is implying that singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together is teaching and admonishing one another, isn't it? We taught and admonished one another this morning as we sang things like, for nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. So I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. You can sing that along to a CD on your own on a Sunday morning and follow it up with a sermon podcast, but that is never going to be a substitute for this right here. We sing this together. I need to hear you declare that to me. Nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. And you hear me sing that to you. And we know each other's stories and we know the sorts of things whereby we would try to claim his grace. And we're saying together in song, nothing good have I. And as we sing these things and we thank God for these things in song, we're actually getting the word of truth more richly dwelling in us. We need this. And, you know, I don't know exactly. Lots of ink has been spilled over, well, what were psalms and what were hymns and what were spiritual songs? And, and, and I'm not ex sure exactly, but probably at least what Paul's saying is, you know, the word of Christ is worthy of lots of songs, <laughs> lots of kinds of songs to get the word of Christ dwelling richly. We need the kind of songs that declare truth, what God, who God is, what he's done, what he is doing, songs about God. We sing some songs like that. God's in the third person. We're singing about him to one another right now. We also sing songs to God. We're going to close this service with one. We're, we're singing directly to God, and musically we are asking him to work in us, right? All kinds of songs. So this is the goal. Word of Christ dwelling richly, teaching one another, worshiping one another. You know, worship is an evidence and a means here. Worship is an evidence that the word of Christ is dwelling richly, but it's also a means. That's what we're saying right here, is that the singing and making melody and giving of thanks actually helps uh, the learning uh, and, the, and the trusting happen. All right. So the question is, uh, how do we want to do this this year? 
as a church. We're already doing this, right? What we're doing right here, we do this every week. This is part of the Word of Christ dwelling richly. Grace groups are a part of the Word dwelling richly. To be able to talk with one another later on in a day or later on in that week to make sure we, do we understand these things, right? That's, that's for this, this purpose. Do we trust in these things? Praying to, with one another, we trust these things. That's what women's Bible study and men's ministry and, and youth ministry and kids ministry. And these things are all uh, ministries for this. But there's, we want to invite you this year um, to, to participate with us in a, in a different way of, of uh, getting the word to dwell richly in us. And that's with a catechism. And that word right there might just scare you. Maybe you've been looking at it all morning there in the corner and it raises your hackles. Catechism doesn't have the greatest connotations with some, right? Why? Huh? I heard something. Okay, you think maybe think your Roman Catholic friends that couldn't play after school because they had to go to catechism. <laughs> Right, they had to go to catechism. Right, and, uh, someone I won't mention names, but they're they're a Haugen in the first service. They, you know, this memories of being a kid in Lutheran church. It was this this massive memoriz. It was just a memorization chore. Right, you just got to memorize all this stuff and then recite all this stuff, and it just sucks the life. You know, the catechism. The word just sounds like catacombs, or it's just, that's not a good thing. Catechizing is even worse. Right, we're catechizing each other. But all it means is teach and instruct. One of the Greek words in the New Testament for teach and instruct um, was the root of this word, catechism. And it's, it's a way of, of, of instructing. And actually, historically in the church, what catechism, catechisms were was, was a really helpful, workable statement of faith. So last year, we did a sound faith series, and we walked through our doctrinal statement, which are these 10 statements. But really, a catechism is saying, how do we take a statement of faith and, and, and make it really helpful in teaching that statement of faith? It's not just 10 statements, but they're written with question and answer and supplemented with scripture to help us understand where do these truths come from? Are we just pulling these out of nowhere, or is this the, the, the God's truth? That's what a catechism is question and answer, uh, and, and in the process of, of meditating and memorizing and chewing on these questions and answer, um, the truth is being understood more deeply and, and Lord willing, by his spirit, trusted uh, more confidently. That's what a catechism is. And there have been many different ones over the years, over the centuries, famous ones, Westminster Catechism. Maybe you've heard the, the question, what is the chief end of man? You know the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the first question in the Westminster Catechism, and it goes on from there. It begins at the very beginning with, why are you here? Your end is to glorify God and enjoy him. That's why he made you. And it moves on to understand this full word of Christ. And so uh, we've chosen to use one uh, that's a little bit shorter that's designed to be used for a year. It's called the New City Catechism. Uh, in 2012, Tim Keller, who's a pastor at uh, Redeemer Church in Manhattan, uh, with the pastors there, uh, decided we want our church to, to be doing catechism this year, and we want to write one that's fresh, drawing upon these older catechisms that are have wonderful questions and answers and truth, and let's, let's put it into one year so that the church together could be doing this. And then they actually made uh, an online uh, version of it and an app, and they said, let's just make it for free for any church, any people out there to use. And so uh, this last year, as we went through our Sound Faith series, our elders were saying, this would be a great thing for us at a point, is to, to, to take us through one year of catechism um, as a help for moms and dads with kids 
to have, okay, this is what we're going to do, to have some worship through the week and to be grounding these truths in our kids' hearts. And this is a great way for grace groups to be talking together uh, and people within the church to be helping one another grow is through a catechism. And we want to, to, to do this this year. So I want to show you in just a couple of minutes here uh, what it's like. First of all, you have in your bulletin this. This is the analog version right here for you uh, low-tech people. Uh, this has the first third of the year broken down by week, so you can see what week we're in. And what's the que- there's a question and an answer and a passage of Scripture for meditating on or memorizing if you want to try to memorize it, but that helps chew on the, the, the truth of the question and answer. Um, but if you go online to their, their website, you can actually follow along, and there's some really helpful resources. So section one goes through God. Who is God? What is God? Uh, what is he up to? Creation and fall. What happened when we sinned? What is the, the, the results of sin? Consequences of it. And the law in, in stages, how has God chosen to, to reveal to us our need for a Savior? And then part two moves on to Christ. And redemption, what Jesus has done, the work of Christ, and grace. And last uh, section moves on to that, to sort of how this comes to, to benefit us, the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our life, and restoration. How, does, how are we renewed after the image of our creator, and how do we grow in grace? What is the Christian life about? Over the course of 52 weeks, uh, a question a week. So go, go forward, Molly. So this is what it would look like. This is week one, this next week. This is what we're going to be... Thinking about at our house, the Clark House, what is our only hope in life and in death? And click on that. It says that we're not our own. We belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love one of the things about this is that it's written for kids and adults to, to learn together uh, in such, see the little brown you know, lettering, that we are not our own but belong to God? Even a young kid could memorize that and chew on that and think about that. But the, the larger answer is for an adult to memorize and to chew on that uh, at a deeper level. Um, and so anyway, that, that, that's why those two colors are there. You can set your app on your iPad or your Android or your computer to adult or kid mode and ESV or NIV. Uh, and then every week there's a, or every question, there's a commentary. Next slide, Molly. Click on the see there's commentary over there drawn from all these saints through history. I mean, Augustine and Calvin and Luther uh, and, and Edwards and Wesley and modern like John Stott and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. These excerpts of, of, of godly pastors and theologians of the past giving some explanation and context and implication uh, for this truth that we're chewing on for the week. And every week there's a short little two to three minute video. As a parent, uh, Lily Mae and I a couple of years ago started this. Right? About three months we, we tried it out uh, each night before bed, and this was so helpful. Each week, I'd, I'd watch this short little video, and it would get my mind beginning to chew on what we were going to talk about. And so it's Tim Keller and all these different pastors um, contribute videos. So that's a resource. And then P over there is for prayer. And if you're in the kid mode, it's shorter and in kid language. And if you're in adult mode, it's it's longer and in adult language, which maybe we need the kid one. But um, but they're written prayers to help turn the truth into an expression of either adoration or repentance or confession or supplication in some way. It's to help connect the, 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 the teaching part with the worship part. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. If you actually go to their website, there, you can click on introduction, and there's a wonderful article I'd encourage you to read sometime this week as you're thinking about, do I want to get on board and do this? Um, but the last thing I'll say is there's something I've seen over the years at Grace at times where we've taken something on together as a church. 
uh, that's a, a unique blessing, that, that, that bumping into people throughout the week and conversations in grace group and in between, as we've been thinking about the same things throughout the week, we could all do a hundred different plans to get the word of God more richly in us, and that would be a benefit. But there's something unique about us doing something together, and that's why we think there's a value of inviting you to, to do it. We're going to weave it into our sung worship on Sunday mornings um, as a way of reflecting and, and, and grounding it in there even more and singing out of it. So uh, that's our plan for the year, and we'd like for you to, uh, to consider doing that. And with our last couple of minutes, I want to ask you to, to pray. Let's, let's bow, and I'm going to invite two or three of you. Uh, would you pray as we begin this new year, and we, um, and we seek to get the word of Christ dwelling richly in us through this, that God would bless that and bear fruit. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, I pray for the fruit that'll, that will be born from from this, from reading and meditating and reflecting and praying and singing and teaching and admonishing, Lord, that this would all be done to your glory. Jesus, you said, let your light shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, there is a sort of light that you want to shine um, from your church, from us, um, out of people who, who know you like this, who know you, who trust you, hearts that the peace of Christ rules over. God, I pray that that really would bear fruit that's visible light, that people would come to trust in Jesus because they're drawn to the light, because they see the, the evidence of your gospel here among us. So we ask that's huge, Lord, but we, we, we pray you do that. We pray for your spirit, that you'd help us in, in, in these moments, day by day, week by week, as we're, we're, me, we're memorizing or re, reflecting or talking with our kids or our um, our co-workers or our grace groups, Lord, that your spirit would bring that kind of understanding that was prayed for uh, just a minute ago. So, um, Lord, like Paul said in Acts 20, we, uh, right now we commend ourselves to the word of your grace that it would, um, that it would help us mature and, and, and build us up. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.